God's Word in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11, says, On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. Coronavirus. When I first heard someone say that, I kind of thought it was a joke. Like, hey man, I got the coronavirus. I have to hang out on the beach and drink Coronas all the time. Like it was, like how could you have a coronavirus? But it's, I realize it's not a joke. It's serious. And if any of you have been following the news, know it's no laughing matter. The virus started in the Wuhan province in China. And even this last week, there was a day in which over 100 people died, and so far, almost 1,700 people have died from it. A little over a week ago, a plane was flown from China to Lackland Air Force Base, and the people, U.S. citizens who were flown there, had to stay there for 14 days in quarantine. Almost all personal flights into and out of China have been restricted, and most of China is locked down, and they're keeping everyone away from those who might have the virus. This hasn't only affected China, but it's kind of starting to spread worldwide. This last week, there was supposed to be a mobile world conference, an annual tech conference in Spain. They average 100,000 people every year, and yet they canceled it for fear of the coronavirus. And one word that describes the whole situation is fear. Fear of a global crisis. Fear of personal infection. Fear of those with the virus. Well, realizing this fearful response to a condition people have helps us understand what's going on here this morning. Because while Jesus doesn't interact with the coronavirus, he does interact with ten lepers who are treated in a very similar way to those who are ill today. In the story here, it's not just a nice moral tale about us going and being more thankful people that we should this story reveals the very heart of god and his actions toward broken outcast people if you have your bulletin you'll see on the back the outline of verses 11 through 14 we see that there are mercy there is mercy for the outcast in verses 15 through 16 though there's a surprising responder and then lastly in 17 through 19 jesus seeks adoration but first beginning in verses 11 through 14 we see that there is mercy for the outcast and it says jesus was on his way to jerusalem and he's passing through samaria and galilee now luke uses the phrase jesus was on his way to jerusalem the way we might talk about someone a politician on their way to washington you know on their way to washington they might go make a speech in utah and then they might go over to florida and then they might go up to wisconsin they're going to all these places kind of talking about their final goal their destination their purpose 
Well, here Jesus does something similar because if you study the geography of Luke closely, Jesus goes south and then north and on both times. It says he's on his way to Jerusalem. Well, that's shorthand for saying he's on the way to the cross. That's his purpose. And as he's on the way to the cross, he doesn't allow other ministry opportunities to be pushed to the side. He has mercy. He has compassion wherever he goes. And here, as he approaches an unnamed village, ten unnamed men, ten lepers, come and approach him. Now, leprosy was feared. It was a very serious issue for Israelites. And in Leviticus, you can read chapters 13 and 14 that give detailed descriptions of how they diagnosed it how they treated it, and the proper response to people with leprosy. As you read it, you quickly realize leprosy is not just one condition, but it's kind of a catch-all for many skin conditions. And though, and thus, it's not what we would typically call leprosy today or Hansen's disease. But leprosy made one ritually unclean, and you had to go to the local priest and show him your condition. And if the priest declared you to be leprous, you then had to wear different clothes. Anytime you saw someone, you had to shout, unclean! And you had to live outside of the community. Thus, being leprous condemned you to the lowest part of society. Not only were you socially cut off from everyone, but you were purposely avoided because of fear of contamination. You know, like the coronavirus, no one wanted anything to do with you. They hoped that you would stay far off in your quarantine zone so that you don't come close to me. Now just consider the horrible nature of this. You know, there'd be no going over to grandma's for the weekend. There'd be no grandma coming to visit you because they don't want to have anything to do with you. There's no birthday parties. There's no significant events you'd celebrate with any of your friends and family unless your friends and family also had leprosy you couldn't go into the temple and you couldn't even go into the town you were an outcast suffering physically relationally and spiritually and thus when these lepers hear that jesus is coming they cry out for mercy they address him by his personal name and they call him teacher most likely, the, these men, they'd heard of Jesus because reports had gone out. We read in Luke 4. Luke 5, he healed a leper by touching him. And surely as other lepers here, did you hear about John? This man named Jesus healed him, and he's clean, and he's back home again. And thus when they know Jesus is there, they cry out, Teacher, have mercy on us. When Jesus sees the lepers, he speaks to them. Now that not, may not seem like much, but consider how most people would have responded. Most people would have responded, get back. Don't talk to me. I don't want anything to do with you. And yet Jesus engages them. He has mercy. He talks to them. And he compassionately tells them, go show yourselves to the priests. Now that must have hit them like, well, what? We're supposed to go show ourselves to the priests after we're healed. We've already been diagnosed. They already know we have leprosy. Why are we going to the priest? He's just going to say, yes, you still have leprosy. And what Jesus is doing is he's calling them to have faith that he's going to heal them. And so these men 
return and in faith start to go back. And amazingly, while they're going, they are cleansed. Jesus didn't need to touch them, talk to them. Right there, while they were there, they could be away from his presence. Didn't have to be physically present with them. And he just willed their cleansing, and it happened. Now, any physical healing is a miracle, but the rabbis thought that being healed of leprosy was just as impossible as raising the dead. Yet Jesus had to do this, and by doing this, he is again authenticating that he is the Messiah. When we saw in Luke 4, Jesus began his ministry, one of the things he quoted from Isaiah 6 is that he came to bring release from bondage, even bondage to leprosy. You remember in Luke 7, John the Baptist, who had proclaimed that Jesus is the Messiah, is now sitting in prison. And so he's wondering, well, if Jesus came to bring release from bondage, or the Messiah did, why am I here? And so he sent his disciples, and the disciples said, John is wondering, are you really the Messiah? And Jesus said, go and tell John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed. By Jesus healing the lepers, he's showing them that he is the Messiah who's come to bring healing. In an interesting, somewhat humorous way, those who often deny his power will have to look at it in the face because the priests will have to examine and say, yes, your leprosy is gone. And they would have had to say, something, someone healed you. And it could only point to Jesus being God's Messiah. I don't know about you, as you read these stories, we can have so many of these miraculous healings that are like, yeah, Jesus healed another person. There's another one, another healed. And yet each one of them should make us go, that is amazing. He is incredibly merciful. He is incredibly powerful. He didn't wave a wand. He didn't give an incantation. He didn't have a new secret treatment that he worked up in his lab. He didn't have to do anything except will it to happen. And by his will alone, ten men were healed of leprosy. Not that you would want to, but imagine you went to a hospital where they're treating coronavirus, and you went and talked to 10 guys, and you said, hey, I don't want you all to have this, so you can just go ahead and go see the discharge nurse. They would think you're incredibly cruel. What do you mean, I don't want you to have it, so just go ahead and go to the discharge nurse so she can release you. That doesn't do anything just because you don't want me to have it unless you're the son of God. And then it can cause it to go away. This story also made me think and reflect on the fact that we can often expect God's mercy in a certain way. I don't know about you, but as you live your life, you see how God's worked in people's other lives, other people's lives, and then you think, well, that's how God works. But God may show mercy in different ways. What he has done in the past may not be the exact way he will act in the present. In Luke chapter 5, he healed the leper, and what did he do there? He touched the man. Here, he heals ten lepers, and he doesn't touch any of them. 
God is showing mercy to every one of them, but it looks different. And so when we pray, as we live our life before the Lord, we shouldn't have preconceived ideas of God can only work if he does it this way. His way might be different, and yet him still be showing mercy. And so we need the same faith as as these lepers, that as they're walking away, maybe even wondering, why am I going to the priest now? But I'm going to trust Jesus' word. We can know that he will act in mercy. Well, they all trusted him. But then in verses 15 through 16, we're told of a surprising responder. Because in verse 15, it says, Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back. Well, how long have they been walking? Was it like turned around one step, healed, and oh, Was it halfway there? Were they about to knock on the priest's door? We don't know. It doesn't tell us. But rather, it does mention that one came back and loudly glorified God. And the question that Jesus is later going to ask is, well, where are the other nine? I think we can draw a wrong conclusion from this, and that is that the other nine weren't thankful. I bet the other nine were thankful. When they go to the priest, and then they go back to their families, and their families go, well, what happened? I'm sure they said, Jesus healed me, and I am so thankful that he did it. The problem is not that they weren't thankful. The problem is that they didn't come back in adoration and praise of God. They were more excited, most likely, to be reunited with family, to be reunited to society, than to be reunited with God. And so this one man, though, he does return, verse 16, and he falls upon his face at Jesus' feet, thanking him. You know, that's showing us something, because remember, they had to keep their distance. And the fact that he would come all the way up to Jesus' feet is showing that he realizes he has been fully cleansed. He has a new view of his own condition. I am a new man. Along with that, he sees Jesus differently, because he doesn't call him teacher again. He bows before him. And then Luke drops a surprising fact into the story because he says, now he was a Samaritan. Now that may not be very surprising to us, but Luke intentionally saved this information so that he would rattle the thinking of his Jewish readers. One man writes, Luke draws out our sympathy for the one thankful man, and perhaps, even our admiration, before we discover, too late to despise him, that he is a Samaritan. Most likely the other nine are Jewish men, but what do they do? They just keep going. The only one who returns is a Samaritan. You know, this would startle them because the Jews and Samaritans hated each other. They were animosities that went on for centuries, both for theological and relational reasons. Theologically, the Samaritans only recognized the first five books of the Bible, and they said we should worship at Mount Gerizim. The Jews said, no, no, we should read all of the Old Testament scriptures, and we should worship at Mount Zion. Along with these differences, theologically, in 128 B.C., so about 150 years before this, John Heracnus, he was a Jew, he destroyed the Samaritan sanctuary. Then in 
6 to 9 BC, almost 100 years later, the Samaritans snuck into the Jewish temple at night and spread bones all around it, making it ceremonially unclean. And so they had a deep hatred for each other. And as you read the Gospels, you see this over and over. When they attacked Jesus, they accused him in John chapter 8 that he had a demon and he was a Samaritan. Like, having a demon's bad, but I'm going to up that. You're also a Samaritan. Take that. Things were so bad, we read in John 4, they wouldn't even share a cup of water with a Samaritan. One point, as we've looked through Luke, Jesus is going and the Samaritans wouldn't let him go through their town. Why? Because he was going to Jerusalem. If you're going to go there, you can't come through our town. And what did his disciples want to do after that? We should call down fire and destroy them. All they had was rage and animosity for one another. And understanding this hostile relationship between the Jews and Samaritans shows why when Luke says he was a Samaritan, it would be shocking to them. They couldn't believe this. It would be like talking and saying, well, the nine men who kept going, they were American evangelicals. And the one who turned around came back, he was a Middle Eastern Muslim. What? No, 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 one of the evangelicals, they would have turned and come back. Muslim, he would have kept going. No, the one who came back was the one that no one would expect. And Jesus is showing that God delights to save all people, not just Jews, not just males or the rich or whites or any external difference we could note. And Luke has been showing this to us over and over. Luke's genealogy doesn't begin, as Matthew's does, with Abraham. Rather, it goes all the way back to Adam, the father of all humans. When Jesus came to the temple, Simeon proclaimed a prophecy, praised for God, and said that Jesus was a light for revelation for the Gentiles. Jesus himself, in Luke 13, said that people from east and west, north and south, will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And so the issue is how do you respond to Jesus? Well, Jesus, though, he is going to seek adoration. Our third point, verses 17 through 19, because Jesus responds to the Samaritan, and he asks three rhetorical questions. First, he asks, we're not ten cleansed? Now, that's not Jesus going, oh, man, I, I was willing for ten, and did I mess up? Did I, like, not do the right will formula in my brain? He's not confused. He knows that ten were cleansed. It's an obvious, well, yes, ten were cleansed. He follows that, well, where are the nine? Again, it's the shocking nature. How could these nine other people had such a condition and they didn't even want to come back? Well, Jesus' third question would have really grabbed their attention. For he says, was no one found turning back in order to give glory to God except this foreigner. Now the word foreigner is a word that is used nowhere else in the Greek New Testament. But the Jews use that word. They use that word on the signs on the temple. And the signs on the temple said all foreigners keep out. And Jesus is implying something extreme here. And consider what he's saying. He just said this man turned back to glorify God. He then says, look, what's not basically allowed at the temple 
can happen here. Jesus is saying true worship for all people happens with me. As well for those days, the man being a Samaritan would have raised a question. When Jesus told them to go talk to the priest, was he going to go to a Samaritan priest or a Jewish priest? Well, Luke doesn't answer. But it does answer where the Samaritan ends his worship. One man aptly writes, This Samaritan, after receiving a healing through the mediation of Jesus, returns to worship God at a new place, at the feet of Jesus. Jesus is showing that he is the new temple. A temple is where God dwells, and what does Paul say? Colossians 2.9, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. You know, the other nine, they're off to go worship at the correct place. But the Samaritan has returned to the proper person and place of worship, the feet of Jesus. And Jesus then directly addresses the Samaritan. Verse 19, he says, rise and go away. Your faith has made you. Well, what has the Samaritan's faith done? If you have a New American Standard, NIV, King James Version, New King James Version, or even the ESV, they all say your faith has made you well. Yet the word for made you well can be used to refer to physical salvation, you know, like you were had a cold and now you're well. It can be used also, though, for spiritual salvation, the forgiveness of sins. As well, you can look up and sometimes it's used for both. So when Jesus says your faith has made you well, Does he mean, well, your faith got rid of your leprosy? Does your faith give you forgiveness of sins or both? Well, think about the context. The Samaritan's faith implied something more than just physical healing because all the men received that. They had all received this healing, yet Jesus is saying, your faith has done something more. Jesus is saying your faith has brought you salvation spiritually. Your faith has saved you. You know, sadly, I think at this point, many people misapply this story. This is a wonderful story to use to encourage thankfulness. But I don't think that's the heart of this story. The heart of this story is really what and where do you worship? And Jesus makes clear that you need to have a faith that shows itself in adoration and worship of him. And that adoration of worship of him leads to salvation from your sins. Jesus is asking, do you recognize who I am and are your actions and your faith showing that? You know, as I've said, I don't think that the other nine were unthankful or even unbelieving. If they were unbelieving, they would have said to Jesus when he said, go to the priest, We can't go to him yet. We haven't been healed. Yet they believe Jesus to turn around and go. Jesus is showing, though, that that faith was not enough. They had faith enough to go to the priest, but they didn't have enough faith to come back. And Jesus shows us that saving faith leads us to gratitude, to delight, to adoration of God. The proper response is seen in the 
Samaritan that he saw that Jesus is more than just a teacher. He's more than just a healer. He is God himself. Sadly, the other nine only experienced physical deliverance, but did not return having the faith that saves. Thus, the issue is not what mountain do you worship at, which was their issue, nor what race you are when you come to worship, or what religion you were raised with. The issue is whether you come to worship now through Jesus and him alone. You think about what's going on. They began this story by saying Jesus is on his way to the cross, and he's trying to show them, and these are the people who are my followers. doesn't matter what race you are. You can be a Samaritan, a foreigner, and he's going to go on in the stories after this. Luke 18, 1 through 8, he's going to say he welcomes widows. Verses 15 through 17, he's going to welcome children. Verses 19, sorry, chapter 19, he's going to welcome a tax collector. Jesus, as he goes to the cross, is showing all these type of people who in your society are outcasts, they're welcome. And you know who's not welcome in the midst of all that? Luke 18, 9 through 14, the Pharisee who is self-righteous. So those who you expect are going to be there, well, no, they are not. But those who come through Christ alone are welcome. The issue is, do you, the issue is not what is your label, evangelical Christian. I go to the right church. We have the right doctrine. The issue is, By who do you come to worship? Do you adore Christ? It doesn't matter if you were raised Middle Eastern Muslim. Even now you can turn and through Christ have forgiveness of sins. But along with commending the Samaritan's faith, Jesus is implicitly condemning the other nine's inadequate faith. And this is something the Bible often warns about. Famous verses in James about how The demons believe and shudder. They have a type of faith, but it's not saving faith. Or Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 warns that there are those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. They didn't have real lasting faith that adored Christ. Judas, he tasted of the power of the Spirit. He knew of the power of God. He saw these miracles, and yet, what did he really adore? Money. All it took was 30 pieces of silver. What would it take for you? 30 minutes of forbidden pleasure? $30? 30, $30, $30, $30 years of being popular and powerful? Or to ask another way, why do you come to Jesus? You know, many come, oh, I come because my children, they need, they need to learn about Jesus, and they're going to learn good morals in the church, and that's why we need to come. Well, Jesus doesn't want you to come just so you have good morals for your children. He wants you to come so that you might adore him, that you might realize that he is God himself. You know, the nine Jewish lepers got exactly what they came for, physical healing but that's all they wanted and like them you can have a type of faith in jesus you even realize he can change your life in positive ways and yet you're not recognizing that he 
is the one worthy of all your adoration. If you're honest, what really gets your adoration is your family or your career or your hobbies or your sports. That's what excites you. Yeah, Jesus is good and he keeps my life going well. But boy, I can't wait till this is over so I can go fill in the blank. And Jesus warns of having a faith that only goes halfway and doesn't go all the way to adoration. Excuse <coughs> me. Jesus says a proper faith trusts and adores him. What's interesting as you read through the New Testament, this is the only time that Jesus is given thanks like this. There's an interesting story, Acts 14, where Paul heals someone, heals a crippled man, and then the people in the town, they come out and they start saying that Barnabas is Zeus and Paul is Hermes, and they even bring out a priest, the priest of Zeus, and they're going to offer sacrifices. But Paul tells them, Acts 14, 14 through 15, he says, or it says, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men like of na- like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You know, that's the type of response you should have if someone comes to bow before you. And yet Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't say, no, 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 no. You don't understand. I'm just a prophet. No, I'm just a good teacher. Well, I'm just here to give you good morals. No, Jesus commends the man and says, yes, this is the type of faith you should have. You should be coming in, bowing before me. You know, any middle ground, this is why I like Jesus, but, you know, he's, I don't think he's God, is not really grasping with what Jesus was claiming for himself. And many people have had a problem with this. And they think, well, Jesus shouldn't be acting like this. Then maybe he's even an egomaniac saying, people should worship me. And if you think that Jesus is only another man, then that's true. And yet Jesus, if Jesus is God in the flesh, then that is the best thing we can do. That's actually what we should do. It'll be what's best for us. And that will actually bring us the greatest joy. C.S. Lewis writes about this, and he talks about how when we love something, we always praise it. He says, the world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers, their favorite poets. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite games. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And so Jesus is calling us to our appointed consummation, to worship and adore him. Jesus didn't come just to get from us. He came to give, to give his life. He became the leper. He became the outcast, the foreigner, the one that everyone despised. And he did this so that we might be welcomed and love. And he then calls us, look, like the Samaritan, come back and adore me. And you can be healed not just of any physical thing eternally, but you can be healed from what really matters, your sin. The coronavirus has us in fear. But there is something we should fear more than that, or even leprosy. Because sin is more contagious, more lethal 
And yet most people don't even worry about it. Eh, no big deal. Jesus, though, he comes to bring us healing in every sense, but in the most important sense of what is robbing us of our greatest pleasure, robbing us from our relationship with God. Thus, come to Jesus in adoration and know full and lasting healing and joy. So what do you come to Jesus for? The nine lepers got the healing from Jesus that they desired. What do you desire? Let's pray. Oh Lord, may you be our adoration, which so many things are vying and pulling and calling us. May we delight in them as the good gifts they are, as they point us back to you. Lord, may we not shun the good things you've given us, but may we see that they're mere signposts pointing to the true, living, and fully satisfying God. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.